This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I am your host and the pastor of education here at Rio Vista Community Church. And joining me today is our Student Ministries Director, Will Bushman. Hey, Sam. Did I say that wrong? That's good. Director of Student Ministries rather than Student Ministry Director? Well, I think we just have a backwards to begin yeah. with, so... Yeah. This is, these kinds of things are important to Mason, so I don't... Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to step on his toes. <laughs> I don't want to mess that up. Uh, just an update on Mark. I reached out to him yesterday, and I know that many of you have been praying that he would be free from the side effects of his Keytruda treatment, immunotherapy treatment. Uh, he did have some pretty bad side effects right afterwards, but I was talking with him yesterday, and he says that those symptoms have subsided and he is feeling better, um, which we are grateful for. But always, please do keep up your prayers for Mark, um, and thanks to Will, who is here in his stead. I know Mark is eager and hoping to be able to get back behind the microphone because he loves doing this and loves lifting up Jesus to people, as does Will. Uh, you know, you're... You're not chop liver. Yeah, it's second rate, but yeah, <laughs> I get it. So we are jumping into First uh, John chapter 3. In the previous two chapters, what John has repeatedly done is, he say, is he's come and said, hey, if, if you're a believer, if you're sincerely a believer, like you should wrestle somewhat with these questions. Like, do you love the brothers? Because if you don't, you can't, you're not a believer. If you say you haven't sinned, you're not a believer. Um, if you're content to walk in darkness. You're not a believer. And so he says these things not to just be judgmental and to say, well, then you're not a believer, but to plead with people to come to Jesus, right? That, you know, if you confess your sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive you, God's grace is overwhelming. He offers this beautiful picture of the gospel, but then he's challenging us, take a personal inventory. Make sure that your life reflects what the Bible says a Christian life should look like, which is a life that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, that is in liberty from condemnation, but that is being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. And so when we pick up in chapter 3, he's going to continue that. He's going to, again, come to us and say, are you a believer? Well, if so, this is what you should find. And it's it's inviting you to take a personal inventory to say, was my conversion authentic? Is the Spirit of God working in me today? And if you see any area of your life where it gives you a gut check, remember what the solution is, go to Jesus. That's your answer. Always, you know, every Sunday school, what's the answer? <laughs> it's Jesus. Because you know what? I'm a pastor, and when I read these things, there's times where I go, gulp. You know, I'm not feeling particularly fond of somebody right now, and I have strong emotions right now, and yet this chapter comes and says you're not allowed to hate your brother or your sister. Like, you need to wrestle with that because an authentic Christian is not content to remain in hatred. You can't. It, the Spirit won't allow it. There's all sorts of things like that that you have to wrestle with. 
Yeah, it's very much like the whole letter has been like a grandpa who's deserved and earned the experience of giving you a lecture. Because mm-hmm. like it's harsh at times. You're like, oh, <laughs> that was stinging. Yeah. But then it's sometimes it's just so soft and mild mannered. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so encouraging in totality mm-hmm. that you, like you, you want to hear this because you're like, oh, I am young, dumb, and I need a warning. Mm-hmm. Like I need to know that if I'm an 80 year old, like, hey, don't look back when you're my age and be like, oh, this is what life is actually about. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's one of the interesting things is he, he drops all these challenging hammers, and yet the word that you'll find all over the place, especially when we get to next week, John is obsessed with this idea of love. You have to love. You have to love. You have to love. And so when he's writing this letter, guess where it's coming from? It's coming from a place of love. He loves you, and so he's willing to tell you a hard truth. And one of the things, you know, in our generation in particular— we have, and, I, and I'm not picking on millennials or Gen Z, I mean in our era. So my generation to lots of generations, right? People today. How about that? That's a good one. <laughs> I said this generation and Will's eyes go, oh, here he goes again. Yeah, Get off lecture. my lawn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, people today have been trained up to see that you are a Christian if some day in the long distant past you offered up a prayer and said, you know what, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I repent of my sins, and I give my life to Jesus. And you just say that with your mouth, like there's some you know, magical obligation of the universe to, to grant you salvation. Well, what you communicate with your mouth has to be substantiated with your heart. Do you really trust Jesus? Are you really saying, I'll walk away from everything in this world and give my life to him? Are you really repentant and sorrow? Are you turning and eager to turn in your ways? Are you, are you giving him your sins and trusting him with your sins and repentance? Like, it's not just something you say with your mouth, but people this day— a lot of them, I think, honestly, are deluded into having a sense of assurance of their salvation because they did something, but you see no fruit in their life whatsoever. And John loves you enough in this letter to go, well, let's walk through this. Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Because if you're doing those things, uh, you might be deceived. And so he wants you to wrestle. Yeah, and he's coming to us, which is true about our generations of this false confidence that we Mm -hmm. do have especially in you know the quasi-christian the cultural christian world where it is just like i have this deep-seated assurance which you know they didn't have you know charles spurgeon the boys didn't have this deep-seated assurance Mm -hmm. like they were fighting for assurance every Mm -hmm. day because they were so afraid that their life didn't match up with what they saw in scripture whereas our world's the exact opposite Mm -hmm. we have this diluted assurance that's just like oh i'm good to go but i don't need anything Mm -hmm. I used to say, and still, you know, I never doubt God's faithfulness. Like when, whenever I come to the, to the table and I'm like, am I really a Christian? Like, look at the way my mind is. Look at the way my walk is. Am I, am I for real? I never doubt God's faithfulness. It's, that's not what's at the heart of those doubts. It's that I look at who I am and I look at my response to what he's done for me. And then I wonder to myself in moments, because there's some moments where you just you sense the spirit. You're eager to, to submit. And in those moments, man, your confidence is through the roof. But it's in those moments where your spiritual life is dry. You know, worship doesn't come easy. The world seems upside down. You're questioning everything God's doing. <laughs> and you don't want to obey. And in those moments, it's like, is this real? Like, I don't—so I guess what I was trying to say is I'd never question God's faithfulness anymore— 
I question my own all the time. Yeah. And that's where this letter is also very helpful because it gives you lines like, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you. And it also gives you lines like, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it about to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, which means who's doing the work? He is. And if you sense him working in your life, that's your assurance. Sam is not the source of my assurance. <laughs> because if you're looking at Sam, good grief, there's a lot to be wanted. Yeah, and that's part of spiritual maturity, too, that we mm -hmm. don't like, but it's necessary. It's like the realization that I am wrestling more is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Like we see, we've talked about that all the time. Like yeah. Just the fact that you're wrestling at all means that the Holy Spirit's moving, that the Holy Spirit's working. He might not be perfecting you like you would like in yeah. that moment. But even the fact that you're like, oh man, today's different. I feel different today. My love for God isn't there today. So let's check this out. Like that's part of spiritual mm -hmm. maturity. And that's where we get in because now you have this tension again that we've talked about. How can you have assurance without making it works-based? Yeah. Right? Because what you want to say is, okay, well then I need to muster up this obedience and that my salvation's dependent upon me doing something. And this is where John comes and says this. Man, says chapter 3, verse 1. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And I want you to stop there because that changes everything. We've, we've said this before. My children don't come home with bad report cards and wonder if they're going to be fed. Right? <laughs> yeah. They don't come home and haven't done their chores and wonder if they're going to be disowned or thrown out onto the streets. Why? Because they're my children. I love them, even when they fail and mess up. And so what John is saying is, okay, as you're going through all of these checklists, what I want you to question is not whether you're obedient enough. I want you to question, are you a child of God? Mm. Have you been adopted? Have you given yourself to him? Has your relationship with him been, have, has it been changed to where you now claim status as an adopted son or daughter? Because if you are an adopted son or daughter of God, guess what he will not do? He will not cast you out for your failures. So it starts with identity. He doesn't go to your behaviors. He says, who are you? Well, let me tell you, because of Jesus, because of the love of the Father, we may now be called children of God. And then he says, for so we are. Yeah, he's almost like shocked by it. I, I'm, I've actually yeah. been, <laughs> like, he's almost like, it seems just redundant, but then he's like, oh, like he almost like read that truth to himself, like, Oh man, so we are. Yeah. Like he was just like so amazed at that fact. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's been um, since writing personal worship. I, I looked at this last week. So then I've been thinking about this all week, um, and it's just like I've been trying to see that. Like that's been a prayer. Like okay, John wants me to see something, and it's easy for me to see in this chapter that I need to be righteous because that's what he's going to be pointing us to a lot. Mm -hmm. But he starts off this chapter saying, "No, I want you to see this first mm -hmm. off." This is the this is where the race starts. Mm -hmm. Like right now, you're children of God. Be amazed by that. Sit in it, realize it, and just take it in, mm -hmm. and then listen. Yeah, and guess what? That's gonna do. It's gonna change your behavior. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna give you a hunger for righteousness when you realize what an incredible father you have and how wildly loved you are and the extent and the lengths that he has gone to purchase you and redeem you and to save you and rescue you from yourself. When you realize the cost that he has paid for you, it makes you want to give everything you have back to him. It, it, it makes you want to obey, which is hard. It's impossible with human nature, fallen nature. Mm. You have to change your identity before you'll ever want 
to obey God. So moving on from there, he says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So what John is saying is he's getting back to this identity thing. Like it doesn't know you because you look like him. Like everything that he is should mark who you are. And so if it hated him, didn't know him, didn't understand him, didn't understand him living for a for an ethic that's totally revolutionary and counter to everything that the world holds dear, well, then they should have the same opinion of you because you should look like him. Yeah, yeah. That they sh- we should look like aliens in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I rem- I remember hearing somebody say, you know, Jesus when he went around hung out with all these different types of people. You know, prostitutes, lepers, drunk, former, you know, people that are suffering addictions, drunkards, sick people. Does your church look like that? Because if your church doesn't look like that, then you're not putting out the aroma of Jesus because that's the kind of people that Jesus drew. And that's always been convicting to me. We want people who are put together. You know, we want people who project certain things. And what this is coming and saying is, like, the world didn't understand him. The world looked at him and says, oh my gosh, you hang out with drunkards and gluttons and prostitutes. Like, you can't possibly be a righteous prophet. And yet, he was, and so the world didn't understand him either, and it shouldn't understand us. Yeah, that's that. This is how I respond to teenagers now, because you know, this is. I mean, I think this is a huge thing for all of us that, like, oh man, do I fit in in this world? Like, mm-hmm. am I likable? If I actually follow Jesus, will I lose all my friends and I'll just be a loser? Because <laughs> that's what they feel. Like, <laughs> totally. And it just jacked up in the teenage years. But John's like, I'm just gonna start responding like John. Like, yeah, cool. You should. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't know you. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's so casual, but it's so, like, logical and honest. You're like, oh, <laughs> all yeah. right. And the, what the church does is we try to be relevant by becoming like the world, and we always look dumb, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just a stupid carbon copy yeah. in, in a worse way. We don't want to be like the world. What makes the church appealing is it's out of the world, you know? So anyway. So That's the tangent you wanted, right? <laughs> all righty. Moving right along. And so, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, like you're, you're not waiting for some day to be adopted. You're not hoping, hey, one day in heaven, I hope he looks at me and says, my child. Like, no, you're God's children now. And then he refers to the future. He says, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So it's like you have the status as a son or daughter right now. Right now, think about that. You have access to the God of the universe, the one who controls all things, and he identifies as your father. Hmm. Intimate. Like, come to him like you have that access you have that freedom you have that identity right now which makes you unbelievably value by valuable by that alone then he goes on and he says what we will be has not yet appeared and get this because this is amazing he says but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and that is the key to understanding this entire chapter John starts this chapter because he's going to be talking to us about, you know, if, if you're really a Christian, you should have a righteous life, which makes us go into legalism mode. Mm. But listen to how he starts. You're a child of God, period. Sit on that. Consider your identity and who you are and the security that's found in that and the love that you should have for the Father because of what he's done for you. Sit in your identity for a moment and then listen to what he says. He says, you will be like God because you will see him as he is. What it does not say is you are going to become incredibly godly (laughs) because you really tried hard. 
Yeah, you looked in the mirror. Yeah. What it's saying is, if you could see God, if you could see him for how awesome he is and how much he loves you and how how ferocious his love is for you, how he's jealous for your affections, how he has set everything aside to come and purchase you, how wild his love is, you would become like him. Yeah. You'd become like him. You, you wouldn't be able to resist becoming like something that amazing. And I preached about this, I don't know, a couple months ago. But you look, there's a, there's, a, there's a maxim that is just true, and it goes like this. You become what you behold. So you, you show me what anybody worships, what any culture worships, and I will tell you what their society looks like. Because your behavior entirely comes from what you believe about ultimate things. It stems everything you do. And so what it's saying is, hey, you want to become more godly. It doesn't start with you trying harder. It starts with you looking at him. Well, how do you do that? You, you study his word. Yeah. You, you listen. You learn more about him. You find out how amazing he is. You continue. Like, we can't see him physically, but with our spiritual eyes, we should avail ourselves of everything at our disposal to be able to see him more clearly because when you see him, you become like him. It's it's like, you know, when you when you find somebody who goes to Alabama, right? And they go to the University of Alabama and they come back home and all of a sudden they're talking like this and you're like, what in the world? You become what you're around. Yeah. You 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 morph to it. You you have a kid who watches a show about superheroes and the moment it's done, he's pretending to be the superhero because he's been amazed by what he's seen. The same is true of us as adults. Jesus is the ultimate superhero. When you see him as he is, you won't be able to help but become like him. Period. Verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And again, notice the verb. It's not everyone who tries really hard. It's everyone who hopes in him. What are you, that's, that's not action. That's not deed. That's a conviction in, yeah. your, in your heart that says, you know what, if my hope's in myself, I'm up a creek, <laughs> you know. Sam Caston Smith will never be worthy of God, but if my hope is in him, that's what's going to purify me. Yeah, what? the order of those words really matters. Yeah, big not, time. <laughs> yeah, it's not everyone who purifies himself. Now you got a hope in him. No, it's like, no. So this is rich gospel, and it helps us to understand, okay, how can the Christian be re- like required by the Scriptures to become more and more righteous without it giving into legalism? Okay, well, let's review Again, what's your identity? You're a child of God. How do you become like him? You put your eyes on him and you see him as he is. You won't be able to help it. And how do you purify yourself? You hope in him. It's not checklist. Yeah. It's relationship. It's your belief. It's your faith. It's your conviction that transforms you, not your effort. Do you think that's why this whole book... I think we struggle with the idea of abiding because it is this passive action Mm -hmm. because it's something that we do have a stake in. But then for us, it's not like the constant running, like trying to keep Mm -hmm. up. I think abiding is like such a scary thing for us nowadays because we're so performance based. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like I got to do it all on me and I got to be everything. I got to be everyone to everything. And everyone's opinion has to be like this and like this. And everyone has to like me and I have to have money and I have to, you know, look good. And I have to do all of this. Abiding is just like, no, you just walk over and you sit there. (laughs) That's really true. 
Like it doesn't, we're, we're abiding in this room right now. Yeah. But if you like walked in, stop, I'm busy. I'm abiding. Yeah. You know, like, no, it's, it's like a restful, passive phrase. Like you're just abiding in Christ. Now that has implications for how you behave. Of yeah. You do things to get there. Right. It, it's going to have, it's going to have implications in how you live. But in reality, you're abiding as my identity is a child of God. You're abiding in the fact that I'm just beholding him. I'm looking at him. I'm seeing how amazing he is. I'm putting my hope in him. All of that is abiding in what he has done, what he is doing, not what I'm doing. And then naturally, by the power of the Spirit, he will begin to bear fruit as the Spirit of God in me. But it's all of this stuff is really passive, and it's really important to take note. So if you were to come to me and say, how can I live a more righteous life? I would tell you, you need to fall more and more in love with Jesus and find your hope and your identity in him, period. Now, that has nothing to do with a checklist. I didn't tell you you need to, to run and stop doing this behavior and that behavior and this behavior and that behavior because the reality is you won't unless you first find a treasure more valuable than that stuff, Yeah, which is him. All right, so verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, and all of a sudden everyone's like, Ooh, oh no, what does this mean? What is he going to say? <laughs> Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's pretty clear there. <laughs> I mean, he, <laughs> the only question you have is, why is practicing sin lawlessness? He tells you, sin yeah. is lawless. <laughs> mm-hmm. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, defined sin with a bunch of different statements and it's really harsh. Like it's like, Ooh, Puritan, right? Yeah, yeah. He says, sin is the dare of God's justice. Huh. So sit on that. Sin is the rape of his mercy. It's the jeer of his patience. It's the slight of his power. It's the contempt of his love. And if you, if you were to parse that entire statement, you know, it's like, God's justice is sitting over you, and Jesus comes and says, no, I'll take that all. And now it's like, I'm going to continue sinning. <laughs> yeah, I dare you to do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's like, it's, it's contemptible of the mercy he's shown. So it's the rape of his mercy. It's the jeer of his patience. It's the slight of his power. It's the contempt of his love. Sin, Spurgeon calls it christ aside, but it's, the, it's a betrayal. Like, we, we tend to treat sin as though it's, you know what, like everybody does it. Yeah, I was having a conversation with my daughter the other day and I was, you know, talking to her about the importance of kindness. And she's like, yeah, but I'm going to sin anyway. So why bother trying? And it's like, whoa, hold on a minute. Where'd that come from? (laughs) But this is kind of all over the place in the Christian church. Like, Uh well, if I'm going to fail, then whatever. You know, God's God's obligated to forgive me. Um, and it treats, but really think those sins that you commit is the are the very thing that put Jesus on the cross. Yeah. God hates them enough to die to defeat them. If we love him and value what he values and hates what he hates, we should have a strong response to our own sin, and we don't. And that's another reason why we should run to Jesus, you yeah. know, because we don't. So he says, sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. It's like... John is basically saying, hey, you remember what he had to go through? You remember the suffering? You remember everything that he sacrificed? You remember how he left heaven and all the praises of the angels, and he came and he endured homelessness and all the, the, the ridicule of everyone and the spit and the punches and the, the, the lashes across the back, and, and he was crucified and he was mocked mercilessly? You remember that? You, you remember why he came, right? He came in order to take away sins. So he, Jesus has a very strong opinion about your sin. It's not something you should be comfortable with. And in him, there is no sin. 
So he came to take away sins and suffered to defeat sins, though he himself didn't deserve it. Nothing. He had no sins. And so Jesus shows more passion in doing away with your sins than you do, obviously. But think about how upside down that is. When it hits home like that, you're like, oh, yeah. Especially from John, who's like, hey, I saw all this go down. Mm-hmm. Like, I know you guys are reading about it, and it should, you know, stir our emotions to read through the crucifixion. And, you know, the week of Passion Week should do something different in our lives. But John's like, no, I saw this guy go through this. Mm-hmm. Like, remember this, guys. Like, we're not that far from that moment where Jesus was crucified. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it goes back to the garden. This is going to be a total rabbit trail. But when you go back to the garden... I, I remember asking students, I don't even know, maybe it was one of your classes, but I remember asking my students at the beginning when the fall happens, right? And God is escorting Adam and Eve out of the garden saying, did Jesus have to die for man to live forever? What's the answer to that question? Did Jesus have to die for man to live forever? In that moment after the fall? So, So where I'm going with this is in Genesis 3, God says, we need to remove him out of the garden lest he eat from the tree of life and live forever. That means that had Adam and Eve taken from the tree of life in their fallen condition, they would have lived forever in their fallen condition. And God says, no. So he did not have to go to the cross for man to live forever. He could have allowed them in their fallen state to eat from the tree. And what, what that says is you are so precious to God that he would die to remove sin from you Mm. rather than to live with you in your corrupt state forever. He's not interested in that. God hates sin contaminating who you are, and he won't allow it. He'd rather allow death to come into the world temporarily so that his son could remove sin from us as the ultimate tree of life on the cross, right? Mm -hmm. But removing sin from you. Like... From Genesis 3, what God is saying is, yeah, they could have lived forever, but they'd have been sinful, and I'm not interested in that. He hates sin. He's, yeah. not, he's not interested in allowing his people to be corrupted by it. So anyway, rabbit trail. But I've always thought that was interesting. He says, no one who abides in him, Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And So let me let me clarify what John is saying because he's made this clear in other passages. What he's not saying is, well, I mean, you should become sinlessly perfect. Yeah. There should be a day where you just don't sin anymore. No. What this is saying is if you continue and you persist in a sin with no conviction and absolute comfort to just keep on doing the same thing with no repentance, no turn, no conviction, you're not a Christian. The spirit's not in you. You can't that's impossible. Yeah, and you can't be abiding in him and keep on saying it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Jesus, you know. So that's that's, right. again, that's the first step is the abiding. Mm-hmm. I've 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 heard this prayer this quote that is applied to prayer and I've always thought it was interesting and it's in my experience it is absolutely true. But the the quote goes like this. Either prayer will drive sin out of your life or sin will drive prayer out of your life. Mm-hmm. The two don't go together. And that's true. That if I'm, if I'm, let's say, in conflict with somebody, and I go in prayer, right, and I'm forced to reconcile with a God who died for his enemy, me, yeah. and who showed grace to somebody who was gross, me, and mercy to somebody who was his enemy, me, what right do I have to hold on to all the animosity? Yeah. So prayer, by making me confront a God who is 
outrageously good to me makes me swallow my pride. Yeah. I can't go before him with a vindictive attitude because if there's one being in the universe who deserves and has right to be vindictive, it's him, not Sam. <laughs> and he showed mercy. And he calls us to be like him, as we're going to see in the coming verses. And that's part of abiding is prayer, mm-hmm. you know? Totally. That's why Paul says pray continuously. Mm-hmm. Why? Because that, that keeps us in touch with the Spirit. That keeps us beholding Jesus. It's hard to pray to Jesus and not have a thought about Jesus in that moment. Mm-hmm. Right? It's hard to just be praying all day long and then look back at your day and be like, huh, never thought of Jesus. No, you were thinking of Jesus all day because you were speaking to him all day. Yeah. And, and reading the scriptures. So when you read stories of Jesus on a cross looking at his persecutors saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Okay, be like that. Yeah. Or when you see him weeping over Jerusalem saying, Man, how I've longed to gather you to myself, but you weren't willing. Like, he's not going, Hey, you had your chance, haha. You know, like, yeah. I'm about to rain down some justice on you. Like, his heart is always to win his adversary, even when they're unwilling. And that's convicting. That's really hard when you're in the middle of conflict, but you can't stay obstinate in conflict when you see him or when you're talking to him. So he says, little children. So here again, he's calling you to remember your identity and who you are. He's humbling them, you know, also. If someone comes to you and says little children, they're not saying, oh, most noble, wise one. It's like, remember who you are. Yeah, you need to be taken care of. You know, you can't, you'll probably not live on your own for very long if you try to do it on your own. (laughs) Correct. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And so this begins, one of the the more common statements that you find in the Old Testament is that you are to be holy as God is holy. And which is like, I can't, I can't, you know, like I don't, I can't measure up to that job description. And John is going to do that in this passage. So here he's calling us, you should be righteous as he is righteous. You're going to fall short. So just know that on the front end. But you should be more and more conforming into his brand of righteousness as you live. And then he says, whoever makes practice of sinning is of the devil. Can you imagine saying that to somebody right now? Like. Yeah. It's not very... <laughs> how, how would you be... If I just got up and said, uh, if you choose to just remain uh, content in your sin, you're of the devil. Yeah, like the devil's your dad. Yeah, that's exactly what it's saying. There's, you only, there's only two fathers, ultimately, in the yeah. spiritual sense of things. There's Father God, who has adopted wicked people and redeemed them as his own, and the father of the devil. Everybody has one or the other. There's no other option. And what he's saying here is if your conscience is dead, if you're not seeking atonement, if you're not seeking forgiveness, then your father is the devil. Sit in that one for a while. <laughs> yeah, and it makes sense. Like, we don't like to hear it, but you do look like your father. Mm-hmm. Like Morgan and I just, now that we have a baby, we just argue about which one she looks like in that moment because we think it varies, and it does, it seems like. But, like, that's that's just a fact. We know that. Like, our baby's going to look like us. Mm-hmm. Like, that's totally. it. It's the law of genetics. Yeah, so when we get here, we're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I don't like to hear it, mm-hmm. but my what I look like in this life does represent Mm -hmm. someone. And this is one of the misunderstandings every single person who's ever been born, except for Jesus and Adam, inherit a sinful nature. You are born according to a sinful nature, which means everybody is born with their father as the devil. That's a really hard doctrine that is absolutely clear in the scriptures. You have to be born Again. again. 
and adopted to be able to claim God as your father. You know, you'll hear people say all the time, you know, everybody is a child of God. And that's true in the sense that God is the originator of everything. Yeah. You know, he makes all creatures in the with the image of God that's marred, but Satan has taken root. For you, the only people that are the covenantal children of God are those that have found forgiveness in Christ. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been since from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So there he's, he's saying, like, Satan has had his claws in humanity from the very beginning of the story, and the reason the Son of God came into this world was to destroy it, to give a pathway to adoption so that you could walk away from Satan, who is the father of the fallen nature, and to be adopted by God with a redeemed nature and the Spirit indwelling in you, to be able to fight against the fallen nature. Yeah, we don't want to give Satan too much credit, but in our world, we definitely don't act like he even exists. Mm -hmm. Like, we yeah, don't completely. act like there's, like, a supernatural warfare going on for souls and for souls of everybody, but we forget that Satan is creeping around, mm -hmm. looking to seek, kill, and destroy, and we're kind of just like, oh, that, that <laughs> seems kind of wild. I'm not going to believe that. But then that's why we get caught up in temptation. That's mm -hmm. why it's so easy to give in, because we kind of undersell him in our life and our need for the Spirit to fight on our behalf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, I'd say of all the different doctrines, Christian doctrines in the church, the one that is least believed, and it's really detrimental to us, is we don't believe that human nature is wicked. Yeah. And it is. It just, it, like, you don't have to train, you've heard this, you don't have to train toddlers to not want to share their toys, you don't have to train kids to lie. It's just kind of naturally built in. There's a selfish desire. Everybody believes the world revolves around them. We're, we're not others-oriented without being transformed or taught, you know? And so from the beginning, I remember when we first had Caleb and I was walking into my seminary and my systematics theology, systematic theology professor saw Caleb, brand new baby, right? Laura walks in, we're all happy, we're showing everybody. And this professor who is old school, he looks at us and just shakes his head kind of like with a smile and says, vipers in diapers. And it was like, holy cow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but but the reality is like when you're born you're born with a sin nature and you know the mercy of God is pretty wild like if 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 I was in my house and my children got bitten by a a, a poisonous snake or a venomous snake and of course I'm going to kill the snake I'm going to take a shovel I'm going to that that snake is dying for sure but suppose after that I went you know, elsewhere in the house, and I found in the corner of one of the bedrooms a big pile of snake eggs. What do you do? Leave them. You'd leave them? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, you destroy them. Why? Because yeah. there's snakes in there. And what are snakes going to do? Do you want them like venomous snakes around? No, they're venomous. In some sense, we're born as children of the enemy with a fallen nature. It's really hard to hear. We have to be redeemed. But God would be totally just if he were to look at snake eggs and destroy them, would he not? Yeah. They're snakes and those eggs. And yet he has chosen to come and redeem them to become something beautiful. We don't acknowledge that in each and every one of us, there's a wickedness that needs to be controlled, suppressed, redeemed, crucified. And it, it doesn't stop. That battle against it doesn't stop until glory. 
Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. There it is again. Why do you not make a practice of sinning? Not because you try really hard, not because you made your checklist. No, no, no. Because God's seed abides in you. The, The Holy Spirit abides in you. He is the one working in you. So that is what's going to drive you to righteousness. So let him abide in you. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. There it is again. By this, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Notice the two options. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so you have to wrestle with that. That doesn't mean you're not, again, that doesn't mean you're not going to fail, but it means that you have some homing beacon in you from the Spirit of God that's calling you to be conformed into His image. You can't rest when you're at animosity with your brother. You can't sit in lawlessness. So verse 11, now he's transitioning and he's going to get really focused on love. He says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And so this gets back to the story of Cain and Abel. It's the first debate, by the way. If you read the scriptures, this is the first debate in the scriptures over faith and works. And so what is the story of Cain and Abel? Interestingly, it's two people who are both seeking to gain the favor of God right? Mm -hmm. And so both of them come with offerings, which is interesting. So it's not like one is saying, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. I want to go sin. No, both of them come to God. Abel, we're told in Hebrews 11, comes by faith, and he's willing to offer a blood sacrifice. He's, He's coming with the firstborn of his flock, and he's by faith, he's offering this to God, recognizing that God's entitled to it. Cain, on the other hand, comes with a, you know, all these crops and stuff, which, by the way, I think, means he worked harder. Would you rather take care of a flock of sheep that are walking around, grazing on the land, walking by streams, drinking and everything else, or are you wanting to be out there digging and planting and harvesting? And Like, one of them requires you to tend to weeds. One of them requires you to dig. It's backbreaking. It's dirty. It's awful. Yeah. It's, it's, and the shepherd works hard, but... You're just kind of watching eh, sheep. Yeah, right? So, who's got, who's got the better argument to go before God and say, I worked harder? Cain. Cain, right? And he does. When God looks at Abel and says, because of your faith, I'm showing favor on your offering. But then he looks at Cain and he says, I'm not showing favor on your offering. Cain goes absolutely ballistic. Why? Because I worked really hard and I'm entitled to the favor of God. And he got it. Therefore, I'm going to kill him. And so what is this debate about? Abel comes by faith. He comes relying on the grace of God. He he makes an offering from a place of not feeling entitled to it, where Cain comes and says, I worked hard, you owe me, and you didn't bless me, I'm going to kill my brother. Yeah. That's that's what John is getting at. You're like, where which which side of that equation do you find yourself on? This story is going to be told again and again and again throughout the scriptures, and this is what you find. You have an older brother who does the right thing, who enti- seems to do the right thing, feels entitled to get the blessing, to get the inheritance, and the underdog, a younger brother who doesn't seem like they should get it, comes along, and God always shows favor on this. So go to the patriarchs, and Abraham has two kids. 
The oldest is Ishmael. He's the firstborn. He's entitled. The next one is Isaac. Who gets the blessing? Son of promise. The son of promise. The second, right? Then you have Jacob. He has two sons. Esau, the firstborn, who's like does what the dad more or less asked, and Jacob, who's a schemer and does all kinds of messed up stuff, who gets the blessing? Jacob. The underdog. Then you get to the next one, and Jacob has 12 sons. It's not the firstborn. It's not the secondborn. It's not Joseph who does all the right stuff. It's Judah, the biggest train wreck of them all. David is not a firstborn. Solomon's not a firstborn. Like, you go down the line, and God is always choosing the underdog candidate. And when Jesus gives you the parable of the prodigal son, it's basically the story of Cain and Abel. You have the older brother who works really hard, and I'm entitled to the blessing, and I should get the inheritance, and here's the younger brother, and he didn't do anything. Like, he's, you know, in that case, he not only was morally neutral— he was terrible <laughs> yeah. spending money on prostitutes and everything. And in that case, Jesus sets it up and he's like, look, the older brother is the one who's bad there. The older brother's like wishing that his younger brother was dead. He's merciless, like he doesn't care about him. And that's a story that's been going on from the very beginning. The older brother who is the, the one who feels entitled sees those that don't deserve, quote unquote, any mercy or favor from God when they see the younger one get it, who's not entitled to it, they're enraged and they're murderous. You see it again and again and again in Scripture. And so where John is saying is, hey, you're falling into that same pattern. You're acting like Cain. You're not entitled to this. You should be, because you've been so forgiven, you should be lavishing love on others who don't deserve love because you didn't deserve love. Don't be like Cain is essentially what he's saying. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. There's biting. Like if you don't love, guess where you're, guess where you're sitting? Yeah. In death. Judgment. Condemnation. Like you can't have the spirit in you and not love. It's totally impossible. It's, a, it's an oxymoron. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You're like Cain. Yeah, you might not raise the knife or pull the trigger, but in your heart, you wish they were gone. Yeah. You hate them. You wish destruction upon them. You're a murderer. And you know that no murderer, hear this, because this is hammer dropping, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so if hatred abides in you, eternal life does not abide in you. Which, that's serious. I mean, look at our world. Dude. (laughs) Very serious. You know, one of the most chilling comments that comes in Jesus' entire ministry, I hate when he says this, is when he's talking about the end of the world, and he talks about wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and all of these things. Like, I hear that, and I'm like, that sounds really unpleasant. But then he says, those are the beginning of the birth pangs. Then he says, but then the love of many will grow cold. And I look at our world today, and it's like, dude, Mm. there's no love. There's no willingness to be humble, to sacrifice for others. It's like drying up. It's just straight-up trench warfare everywhere you look. It's, It's gross. Yeah. You don't see that sac. You, you know, we don't. We don't want to go out. We don't avail ourselves to community. We're, everything that comes on our schedules and imposition, we don't sacrifice for one another. The love of many is growing cold, and that's a scary thing. 
Because if you don't have love, you don't have eternal life. The Spirit's not in you. Yikes. Wrestle with that. And by the way, if that rocks you to your core, you know what you should do? Run to Jesus. Listen to the next verse. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's just rich. Yeah. Like, you're not saying... It's, it, everything becomes an act of worship at that point. Like, I'm... I don't have to forgive somebody because I value them first and foremost. I have to forgive them and love them because I value my Savior who did the very thing for me. And then he says, okay, because I've done this for you, I want you to go do this for others. And so by not doing it, I'm withholding love not from the person only, but from my Savior. Yeah. Like, it's an act of worship to love your brothers when it's hard to love your brothers. It's an act of worship to forgive those who really put you through the ringer when you don't want to. Because he forgave you when you put him through the ringer, right? Like, you have yeah. no right to withhold love and forgiveness. And that's really hard, and sometimes it takes a while. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you got to chew on it. and some, But fight. Like, that is the noble thing. Yeah, that's the noble thing. It's freeing to be kind of like just that decision just taken from you. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to, like, add up all the wrongs. You don't have to see, like... You know, mm -hmm. example A and example B, and if they make it to this bar, then forgiveness comes. It's like, no, look to Jesus. That's the bar. Amen. And then it just, it, in a backwards way, maybe in my control freak mind, it's freeing because then it's just like, not that there's no thought to it, not that it won't be difficult, but it's not even based off the other person at all. It's not based off of me at all, that it just reduces all of us to, all right, did Jesus do this? Okay, then I'm going to work really hard at doing it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not going to be easy. You know, because there's real hurt, there's real awful things that happened to you, that were, but forgiveness still should triumph. Mm -hmm. And a long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, I had a, a lady come into my office. I wasn't a pastor, but I had a lady come into my office, and she said to me that she was blaming someone for causing the suicide of her daughter. Oh, wow. She was super bitter against this person. And she asked me if I thought that she had to forgive this person. And she made this strong case about why she couldn't forgive. And I looked at her and I said, I do think that you're obligated to forgive them. And she was immediately pretty annoyed with me, understandably. Yeah. But I said, but I think you're going about it all wrong. Like what you're doing is you're looking at this person and you're saying, I have to wait until they're worthy of being forgiven. Hmm. that's not what Jesus commands. Yeah. Like Jesus says, you know, when you offer up the Lord's prayer, what does it say? You know, we forgive as he has forgiven us, like that's at it. And then it goes on and it adds this little addendum afterwards that if you withhold forgiveness, forgiveness is withholding from you. Like, whoa, yeah. what does that mean? And so when you forgive, it's first and foremost an opportunity for you to love Jesus. It's taking this unbelievable, very real pain that is grieving you, has wounded you, and you're walking in front of your Savior who's done far more for you, far more for you, and it's an opportunity to take this beautiful offering that's really costly to you and to lay it as a feet and say, I am willing to forgive because you forgave me. It's a beautiful opportunity to worship. It doesn't mean that you have to say, all right, now I'm chums with that person. Yeah. It just means you need to stop actively rooting for their destruction 
Yeah. And you need to root for a redemption, the same kind of redemption that Jesus was hellbent, literally, to achieve for you. It's amazing. And mm-hmm. I think it's cool that, uh, I mean, First John 3.16 talks about, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus dying. And then yeah. I think about John, John 3.16. 316. Yeah. And that's how I memorized this verse early on, because I'm like, oh, just a little yeah, different than go. John 3.16. Yeah, that's, that's good. I didn't catch that. He says, if anyone else has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Like, if you see him, if you're becoming like him, Jesus is the most generous figure in the history of man. He gave everything far beyond anything he's asking you to give. And so if you can look at the authentic needs of your brother, now that's with wisdom, if you can look at authentic needs that you can meet and you choose not to because your goods are more important to you than your neighbor, Hmm. you're not like Jesus. Yeah, this one's the most annoying. (laughs) I I think the murder one, I'm like... Okay, totally get that. The hatred one, okay, a little harder, but I get that. But the indifference one, because I think I'm, I'm, I'm obviously prone to indifference way more than murder. I think in my life, so this one like really hits you. Like, oh no, like he keeps just like lowering the bar low. Murder, you're like, all right, I'm good, Jesus. Like we're good. I haven't killed anybody yet. Um, but then hatred, you're like, okay, that happens to me. Yeah, yeah, rarely. Don't. Like like hatred, I don't use that word often, but it has happened in mm-hmm. relationships in the past. But then indifference, you're like. I'm just looking through my day and I'm finding indifference everywhere. <laughs> and it's hard because there's so many needs. And that's where, um, gosh, this is, I don't want to get down the road of charity, but there's smart ways to help. Of course. And then there's reckless ways to help. And so this isn't saying, you know, for every person who comes and says, I need this, I need that, you need to give to them. Like use wisdom because sometimes giving can actually hurt people. But it does mean you can't be indifferent. You can't look at issues of justice and mercy and shrug you just can't yeah jesus didn't you shouldn't verse 18 little children there it is again let us not love in word or talk but in deed and truth yep you gotta walk your faith it's not enough to just say oh, i prayed a prayer once like no, no no it should it should animate you if the spirit of god is inside you and you're yielding to the spirit of god people should notice it should animate your deeds by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Notice that. He's, John is saying, you need to reassure your heart. You, you need to take inventory of the fruit in your life and reassure your heart that the Spirit of God is working in you. And by the way, if it's not, it's not a matter of legalism and go work harder. Again, sit and think, I'm a child of God. My identity is in him. My hope is in him. I need to keep my eyes on him because the Bible tells me if I want to be more righteous, the key is not trying harder. It's loving him more. It's keeping my eyes on him more. It's hoping in him more. That will transform me. So he says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, so this is an apostle who's saying, you know what? Sometimes my heart condemns me. Yeah. Paul wrote about that. Like the heart is the your most vicious yeah. <laughs> critic. Like you'll condemn yourself a lot, but whenever your heart condemns, listen to the next line. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. He he could make a greater case about sins you have no idea about, right? Yeah. Like he knows far more than I can lay level against myself and what does he say? Forgiven. Yeah. I took it. I paid it. You're righteous. You're my child. You're clean. So when your heart condemns you, look to God who's already rendered a verdict. Innocent. 
righteous, mine. That's the verdict. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So in other words, what he's saying is, okay, when your heart condemns you, remember God's greater than your heart. Let that verdict speak over your life so that you have the liberty of not feeling condemned. And when you feel the liberty of not being condemned, you have confidence before God Hmm. because you believe what he says. You're trusting in his forgiveness, and therefore you can have confidence to go before him, to pray to him, to consider yourself a child of God, to have hope in him. That's what this is getting at. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. This is it. You ready? This is, this is what God says. Okay, you, you want to be mine? Here's the commandment. What do you expect it to be? I mean, it's not new. Right, right. I mean, John rephrases it, but it's just what Jesus said. That's right. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So, like, he's, he's not saying, okay, you know, the 613 laws in the Torah, like, you got to do that. It's, hey, here's the commandment. Believe. Yeah. Believe in love. I mean, that's it. Like, that's that summarizes what he expects from us. And he's the one, by the way, who provides the power to do that. So verse 24, it's really crazy how freeing the gospel is. Like, yeah, it will compel you to righteousness, but it's entirely by looking at him and trusting in him and meditating on him. That's what changes you. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Right? You abide in God, and his power comes into your life, and he abides in you, which is a crazy thought to think that the creator of the heavens and earth abides in me. Like right now, as I'm talking to you, yeah. God lives in me. Yeah, it's wild. That feels crazy to say. I feel like a megalomaniacal yeah. moron, like, <laughs> like God lives in me. But that's what the Scripture says about us. It's wild. Think about how, that, how he condescends to make us valuable jars of clay filled with treasure. It's, it's, and it's really amazing. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so the Spirit works in you. Think Galatians, which we just finished a series on that. All the fruit of the Spirit. Notice it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of Sam and Will. Mm. But when you abide in him and he abides in you, he's the one that begins to produce the fruit of the Spirit. So you'll see righteousness. You'll become more like him when your eyes and your heart are fixed on him. Amen? Amen. I think we can call it right there. I think that's a good one for us to end on. I agree. Man, I love walking through this epistle. You know, it's challenging. It definitely, like, there's points of this where I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. But again, whenever you hear something from John, where you're like, oh man, I'm that makes me really uncomfortable. What's the solution? Look to Jesus. You run to Jesus. That's it. Set your eyes on him, your hope in him, and remember your identity is that you are a child of God. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Join us next week as we are going to be tackling 1 John chapter 4. And uh, really looking forward to that. Have a blessed week. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.